Heavenly Father, we come here to a subject that we confess is vast beyond our capacity to understand. And how can it be otherwise? Solomon confessed that heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you, how much less this house that he built. How much less our confessions and our words, human words, words of creatures, they can't completely contain the truth of God, but they can be filled with the truth of God if we stick to your word, if we learn from your word, if we bow before it. Bow before it humbly, not expecting to be masters of it, but hoping and seeking to be mastered by it. And that's our, that's our prayer today. That's our hope. That's our aim today. Help us to be mastered by your word. Help us to be overwhelmed with what it teaches and shows us of your greatness. Help us also to see and cling to every bit of truth that we can get our hands around from it. We pray for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. So here, what kind of God is God, part two. And I'll say, if you didn't hear last week, I really, really urge you to listen to it. It's foundational to what we're talking about this week. Uh, So what are we doing? We're learning and studying the nature and the works of God. So here's what we are. You and I, we are little bitty ants. We're fire ants, little tiny ants, diving down to touch the bottom of the Marianas Trench. How deep is the Marianas Trench? Seven miles. That's right. What's the chances that uh, an ant is going to touch the bottom? Oh, zero. But here's the thing. Actually, in our subject, there is no bottom. There is no bottom to the greatness of God. That's what infinite means. That's literally what the word means. It means there's no edges to it. So uh, we're starting a dive that we will never complete. But here's the thing. The deeper we dive, we don't drown and we don't explode in the depths. The, the deeper we dive, the more life we get. The deeper we get, dive, the more blessed we are. The deeper we dive, the more overwhelmed we are, true, but the more uh, overwhelmed we are with the greatness and the glory of this God who has chosen to make us His and to make Himself known to us. So if we can but get a glimpse of His ways, as it says in Job, we'll be grateful and we'll do our best to get the biggest and best glimpse we can. Because this is what eternal life is. Isn't that what Jesus prayed? I remind you. John seventeen three, the Lord Jesus prays. And this is eternal life. What? That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And that's what we're doing. That's what we're about. So we'll start by a bit of a review of last week, and then we'll plunge in deeper. And I don't want to rush this. I'm, I'm hoping I can do this all in a sermon. If I don't, well, then we'll just see. I'll, I'll, I'll stop when it's time to stop, and we'll return to it next week if need be. But this is not something to rush. Let's begin then with Roman numeral one, just getting the biblical core of the doctrine of the Trinity. And to get the biblical core, I think it wise to start with God's essence, that's letter A, God's essence, E-S-S-E-N-C-E. And what are some of the other words that we gave for essence last week? Does anybody remember one even of the other words for essence? Perfections, what did you say? Attributes, that's right, attributes, perfections. His essence is His nature. 
His perfections, His attributes are who He is. Or I should say they are what He is. That's what His essence is. It's the whatness of God, the godness of God. So let's start with His essence. And uh, the first truth we need to lay down, number one, is there is one God. Now, here is one of those verses that's a minimum list that every Christian should know. What's the go-to verse in Deuteronomy that asserts that they're... That's why they're both blank. <laughs> Not even a clue here. Uh, what, is the, what is the go-to verse in Deuteronomy that asserts there is one God? 6-4, that's right. The Jews call it the Shema because that's the first word in the verse. Shema Yisrael, Yahweh Eloheinu, Yahweh Echad. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God, Yahweh is one. Well, I meant to go there, but I just said it for you, so I guess we'll go ahead and, and use the time. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God, Yahweh is one. And just a little aside, free, no extra charge, there are a couple of Hebrew words for one. There's one that means like a solitary unit, and that's not the word used here. That's the word you use if you want to say you're all alone. You say you're yachid, but that's not the word here. The word here is echad, a word that is used of a complex kind of unity. Which of the two words do you suppose is used when in Genesis 2 God says man, uh, that the woman shall leave her father and mother cling to a man shall leave his father and mother cling to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. The Yahid one or the one here? You'd be right if you guessed the one here. A complex unity. One flesh but two persons. Or it's the same word that's used of the cluster of grapes that they bring back from Canaan. It's one cluster. Echad. But is there just one grape in a cluster? No, there's more than one grape in one cluster. So it's one in one way. It's just one cluster. But in that one cluster, there's lots of big juicy grapes. Don't get hungry yet. So there is one God as to his essence. Letter A. Which means that the God described in Scripture alone is God. This is the God who is God. He is one. He is one. As Scripture describes Him, that is the one God. So His essence, His nature, His godness marks Him as sui generis, uh, the, the Latin phrase meaning one of a kind. There's only one of Him. And His essence describes what He is. So this being who is as the Bible describes Him, He is holy, He is love, He's light, He's wise, He's sovereign, and all of the other perfections that God is all the time at the same time, there's just one of those. There's just one of those, and that is God. So that's what it means. It means this one essence who's described by His perfections. There's just one, one God. And so that affirms, letter B, that God is in fact true and living. Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is one. They're worshiping the God who is one and who is real, and the only one who is such. So both the minimum count and the maximum count for the true God is the same number. One. There's not more and there's not less. There's one true and living God. And this is important for us as we go on later to, just to try to understand what the Trinity means. That if we find ourselves saying things or thinking things about the Trinity that add up to more than one God, more than one who possesses this essence then we are uh, going in the wrong direction because there's only one essence. God is only one as to his essence. And just spoiler alert, the Trinity is not the doctrine that there are three essences of God. 
And if there's just one essence of God, but three persons subsisting in that one essence. And so it is right and it is proper to worship him. He is the one who is infinite in his goodness, in his wisdom, in his righteousness, in his sovereignty, in his love, uh, in his justice, and all the other wonderful things that describe what God is. There's only one, and he deserves our worship. He deserves our praise, our reverence. So it affirms that, and at the same time it denies that there is anything or anyone else who can truly be called God. The essence of God is just one, and it's not more than one. So there's no way to call someone else a true God. If you, if you call someone else a God, you have to affix the adjective false to that. See, this is where the Jehovah's Witnesses are in a bind that they, they can't really admit because it would undo their whole system. But they believe that there's only one God, true, and that God is only one person, false, and that Jesus is a God, a true God, but not Almighty God, false. There's only one worthy of the name unqualified God. There are images of God. There are people who serve offices in the place of God. But there's none rightly called unqualified God as Jesus is called God. So Jesus either has to be of the one essence of God or he's a false God. We don't believe the latter. We believe the former. So it denies that anything else can truly be called God. It denies that any true understanding will multiply his essence and say there are three wills in God or three uh, holinesses in God or three wisdoms in God. There's not. There's just the one, just the one essence. And so our understanding of the Trinity has to be controlled by the fact that there is just one essence to God, one mind, one will, one sovereignty, one holiness, one righteousness. And one other thing that this uh, uh, denies is that this reality will ever change. Now, and this is also very important. What God is now, He always has been, and He always will be. And that's because of one of the attributes of God. And what is that attribute? That perfection, Im immutability. He doesn't change. So you, a way of saying that is if something changes, it's not God. And if it's God, it doesn't change. God always is who He is, always has been, always will be. So, <clears throat> there's one God. Now, number two, this truth about God is called not henotheism. Four letters go in the blank. H-E-N-O, not henotheism. Now, be honest. Uh, show of hands. Who has never heard that word before? Henotheism. Oh, my. <laughs> That's great. So you'll go to bed when you get home. You've learned your one new thing for today. Once I've accomplished this, that's a great thing. What is henotheism? It comes from the Greek word hena, which means one, hen, pardon me, hen, which means one thing. Henotheism is the belief that I worship one God, but I believe there are other gods. Now, I have one God, but there are other gods out there. Um, this is what you'll hear many Jews say today. They, Jesus is the Christian God, but, but they've got their God, but they're not telling anybody else what kind of God they should have. They're actually, they'd say they're monotheists, but they're actually henotheists when they say that. And they're actually apostate from the Old Testament, because as we saw last week, the Old Testament says very emphatically that there's only one God. In, in fact, what does God say? What other God is there? And then he says... 
I don't know of any. <laughs> so if he doesn't know of any, there, there aren't any. So we're not confessing henotheism. And some Christians, cowardly Christians, who want to kind of give a witness, but they don't want to be disliked, they'll say, well, Jesus is, is what works for me. This is what's good for me. Well, you know what? If it, if it is what the Bible says, it's good for everybody. Now, what's bad is not knowing this God. That's bad. That's bad for everybody. Because he either is the only God or he's not God at all. So we're not henotheists. What did you think I was going to say? It really is, letter B, monotheism. M-O-N-O. Now, henotheism comes from the Greek word hen, which means one. Monotheism uses the Greek word monos, which means only. So this is only Godism. The, the, the God of Scripture is the only God. He is one God, and he's the one and only God. So that's what we are. We are not henotheists. We are monotheists. And if anybody, you feel trembly because you say, well, I'm not actually a monotheist, am I? Because I believe Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Oh, no, you're a monotheist. How many essences of God is there? One. You're a monotheist. Christians are monotheists. Oddly, Jehovah's Witnesses are polytheists, so they wouldn't say so. And of course, Mormons are polytheists. But biblical Christians are monotheists. So God's essence. Now let's start touching on what we didn't look at much last week, and we're going to at least begin to this week, letter B, God's persons. Better take another drink of water. So God's persons. Now let's, you can outline this truth. You can outline, outline the basics of this truth fairly simply. But do not think I'm saying it is a simple truth. I am not saying that, but I am saying that you can state it truthfully and simply. So the biblical doctrine of God is that God is one in his essence. And now, as I say, number one, this one God, that's what goes in those blanks. This one God is a father. This one God is father. I'll read this one to you. First Corinthians 8, 6a. We looked at it last week. Yet for us there is one God the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for Him. So equally clearly, Scripture says that there is one God, and it says that there is a God, that, that God is called Father. And many verses say this too. You look at 1 Peter 1, you call on God as Father, Peter says, spend the rest of your days in fear. Um, God is Father. But, letter B, this time do turn with me to Titus 2.13, please. So that's right after 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, it's before Hebrews. Titus 2.13. So the grace of God appears teaching us to live godly lives. Verse 13 looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That is and is only the correct rendering of the Greek text. Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So he is called great God and Savior. He's called our great God and Savior, meaning we worship him as God. There is no way to get around this language grammatically, no honest way, grammatically or any other way. Jesus is called our great God and Savior. So, this one God is Father, and this one God is Son. 
our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. But wait, there's more. You're already ahead of me, but letter C, Spirit. This God is also called Spirit. And the clearest passage is Acts chapter 5. Please turn there with me. And in the context in Acts, the people in the church are uh, voluntarily selling their possessions and pooling the resources to help the poor. And there's a couple who does that, sort of. They sell, but they hold back part of it, but they represent that they're giving all of it to the church. Ananias and Sapphira. So Peter calls Ananias, and in verse 3, Peter, uh, we're looking at Acts 5, verses 3 and 4. Peter said, Ananias, now, now follow this, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land. All right, no trick questions. Who has Ananias lied to? The Holy Spirit. Now read the next verse. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under uh, under your authority? Why is it that you laid this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Now in this verse, who did he lie to? God. Verse 3, he lied to the Holy Spirit. Verse 4, he lied to God. Therefore, simple syllogism, the Holy Spirit is God. So God is one, and yet the Father is called God. The Son is called God. The Spirit is called God. So however we understand that, we've got to pair two truths. That there is only one essence as to God, but the Father is of that essence, the Son is of that essence, and the Spirit is of that essence. Now, if I were to take the time, I could show you many passages in which you see the three distinct... Oh, I just will, and no extra charge. Turn to Matthew chapter 3. This is all taken in in your one simple entry fee of nothing. Matthew chapter 3. And so Jesus comes to be baptized, and of those three persons, which one is Jesus? Father, Son, or Spirit? Well done. So Matthew 3.16, after being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming upon him. So of those three persons, who descends on Jesus? the Spirit of God. And behold, there was a voice out of the heavens saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Whose voice would that be? The Father. Are they the same? Are they like like a comedian who wears different hats and runs back and forth on the stage putting on a different hat? No, there's, there's there's a person in the water. There's a person who descends on that person. There's a person who speaks from heaven. These are three distinct persons. And yet, as we see, Scripture says that each person is fully God. So, back to the outline. Therefore, three persons subsist in one essence. So, let me put this a couple of different different ways. That is to say there are three eyes in the Trinity. The Father speaks of Himself as I. Well, I could just use this passage, in whom I am well pleased. But the Son speaks of Himself as I, and He speaks to the Father as you. Read John 17, where He prays to the Father. Here the Jehovah's Witnesses say, ho, 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 is God talking to Himself? And we say, he, 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 no, the Son is talking to the Father. 
They are distinct persons, but they are of one essence. The Father is I to himself, he's you to the Son. The Son is I to himself, he's you to the Father. The, Father, uh, the Spirit speaks in his own right. In Acts, I believe, chapter, it's either 13 or 14, he says, separate the men who I have called to this work. So there are three who call themselves I. There are three persons. There are three subjects who act by means of this nature. That the essence, the nature, is what a person acts by. So there are three actors who act by, who do things by, who work in this nature. nature. So these three who's exist and operate through one what? And they are equal to each other in power, in glory, in greatness, in majesty, because all three subsist in the one nature. So let's talk about some of the edges of this truth. Where do we go out into damnable error? Let me warn you of a couple because they're, they're subtle. You know, no false teacher is going to come up to you and say, hey, you know what, um, I've got a damnable error I'd like to talk to you about. If I can persuade you to believe this, you'd go to hell under the wrath of God forever. Sound good? Got five, got five minutes? I can do it in five. No, they never do that. And, and undiscerning, untaught Christians perfectly understandably can hear and not discern that they are hearing error because they use some, some sound language, but what they do with So, edges of truth, letter A, God is not three modes, M-O-D-E-S. He is not three modes or roles or manifestations. So, oh, I'll give you time. Not three modes or roles or manifestations. I'm assuming you're writing this down or you have a photographic memory. Not three modes or roles or manifestations. So in other words, he's not, like I said a moment ago, he's not a comedian putting on a hat here and then setting it down and running over here and putting on another hat, then setting it down and running over here and putting on another hat. That's not the Trinity. That doesn't explain the Trinity. And so let me say again as a free aside, most of the examples we use, they're modal, they're, this is called modalism. This is the her- heresy of modalism modalism from the word mode. The idea that God is one person appearing as three offices or in three roles. And most of the examples we use are are modalistic, like water or um, a clover leaf or or, you know, the different things that we use. We say, well, like I'm a I'm a son to my parents and I'm a father to my children. I'm a husband to my wife. Well, that's modalism. That's not the Trinity. It's the same person in three different roles. That's not what we're saying here. That's not the biblical doctrine. Who holds that? Well, here's a famous name. T.D. Jakes is somebody who holds that. There's a denomination called the, now get this, International United Pentecostal Church. Now, not all Pentecostals, but the United Pentecostal Church, that exact name, is what's called oneness, if you've heard that, or modalism. That is this heresy. It's the heresy that there, God is one person who operates in three capacities, or who acts through three roles, but it's just the one person. And so that is the person you would say, so when the Son speaks to the Father, he's talking to himself. And in that understanding, you'd have to say, yeah, that's exactly what he's doing. He's talking to himself, because there's just the one person. Acting as Father, acting as Son, but one person. 
And that's not what the Bible teaches. Here's their statement of faith. Here's how they say it. There is one God who has revealed himself as Father through his Son in redemption and as the Holy Spirit by emanation. They get more and more slip, slippery, and you've got to learn to listen for certain things. And I've seen Orthodox churches use bad language. I don't mean foul language. I mean inaccurate language in their statements of faith that is wiggly. You want to have a statement of faith that says, as ours does, something to the effect that one God eternally exists in three persons. But if you see as, or operates as, or manifests himself as, then you've got to wonder, am I looking at a heretical statement of one person operating in three different roles? Uh, so God also, letter B, is not three gods. We are Trinitarians. We are not tritheists. Now I say he's not three gods. He's also not two gods or four gods or 27 gods. He's, he's not more than one. So when we are affirming Trinitarianism, we're not saying that God is three gods. He's not three sovereigns. He's not three holinesses. He's not three wills. He's one in his essence, three in his persons. The word Trinity is, it was devised to try to suggest triunity, three in one, and not threeness. Um, so one God acting through one nature, one will, one mind, one holiness, one light. That's the truth. Therefore, letter C, let me give you three ways of saying it fairly simply. Now, I do want to take a second to say, we're saying it simply. Am I saying that it's simple? You're not sure? No. No, I'm not. And that is the trouble. That, that is a trouble we need to guard against in our area of Christendom. That we believe the Bible teaches certain things. We want to learn them. We want to say them in clear ways. But boy, oh boy, God forbid that we should ever, and I mean that literally, not, not as an expression, God forbid that we should ever think that that means that it's simple. If, if the fact and the truth of the Trinity doesn't blow your mind, if you think, well, I've got a simple little formula I can say, and that captures the Trinity, we have done it wrong. I, I'm telling you, we've done it wrong. It's a truth that should blow and challenge our minds. And I tell you, um, thank you. My, my teaching this again has blown my mind anew and, and challenged me and driven me to study the new depths. depths. And I'm glad of that. I mean, it's, it is humbling to realize just how stupid you are when it comes to this infinite being. But how can you expect otherwise? You know, I think if you're overwhelmed with God, then you really ought to say, yep, Right on schedule. I mean, if I'm not, then I think I'm on the wrong road. First thing I should think, if I think I've mastered God, is something here is very, very wrong. Amen? Amen indeed. So here are ways I'm trying to make it so that you can feel like you at least got the outline. A, God is eternally one in one way and three in another. Letter A, God is eternally one in one way and three in another. Now that's very simple, but it is profound, and it does say it. It says the edges of it. In what way is God one? As to his essence. He is one in his, and eternally so. But he is also eternally three in another way, and, and how's that? As to his persons. 
eternally. So there never was not, and that was the heresy of Arianism very early on, that there was, a, Arius, an early heretic, said there was a time when the Son was not. No. He's eternal because He's God. So this is an eternal reality, and a, statement, a good statement of faith should make that very clear, very simply clear. Eternally one in one way and three in another. Letter B, God is eternally one essence subsisting in three persons. So that's just the same truth put another way. And by the way, if you get this, then you see why, again, I think people have well-meaningly said this, well, God is, God's beyond reason. I, you know, I don't expect it to be logical. God's not logical. It's not rational. No, that's not true. That's not true. If he were not logical or rational, he wouldn't be true. Because who made the rules of logic and, and reason? God did. So you say, well, yes, it's, it's not logical to say that God is one and three. Yes, it's not logical to say that God is one and three in the same way. Are we saying that? No. There's nothing illogical about saying he's one in one way and three in another. Now, there's where I can use that example that I dismissed as heretical earlier. Here's a non-heretical way to use it. I am, or when they were alive... I was son to my parents, and I am father to my children, and I am husband to my wife. So that does show that I can be one in one way and three in another way. Now, that's not exactly the way the Trinity is, but the Trinity is also one in one way, but three in another way. There's nothing illogical about it. Everybody more or less with me? I hear no. <laughs> I hope mostly yes. Letter C. God is eternally one what and three whose. You say, Pastor Dan, that's just three ways of saying the same thing. Yeah? Maybe you like one of them better. Maybe one of these works better for you. But that's my aim. God is eternally one what and three whose. Remember from last week, the, the essence of God is the whatness of God. That's what His nature is. That's what it means to be God. The who is the personhood. So is God personal? He's tri-personal. He's three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So if I ask the question, what is God? Then, as I said last week, the Westminster Shorter Catechism gives a good answer. What is God? God is spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. That's what God is. And there's one of those. Who is God? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's His persons. There's three of those. Okay. So, there's the biblical core. You can say the biblical core simply. The Bible says there's one God. The Bible calls the Father God, the Son God, the Holy Spirit God. That's the simple core of this truth. It's thinking about it and working it out and seeing what it means. That's where we get way, way beyond where our, where our feet touch the bottom anymore <laughs> or even within sight of the bottom. So let's start looking at that from, from the angle of glories. I think I've probably exercised your, your heads enough. Let's look at how glorious this truth is. And once you start learning about this truth, just about every time you read the Bible, you see... The Trinity is in the Bible. The Trinity is... Um, oh, you know what? I skipped something. 
Well, you're so nice. Thank you for just letting me blither on. Let's back up. Because I realized, you know, there's something I wanted to talk about. Was there a place I was going to do that? Oh, right here. All right, so let's do that. Uh, Number two, this conviction is called Trinitarian monotheism. Now, maybe before you came in today, you would have thought those words don't look like they go together. One's a three-word and one's a one-word. Now, you see, they do go together. Trinitarian monotheism. There's only one God as to his essence, and he is three in one as to his persons. And I, I just want to say that in case anyone's saying, I would, I would hope somebody been here for long wouldn't be saying this, but perhaps somebody's new, and he might be saying, you know, I don't see the need for these words that aren't in the Bible. The word Trinity isn't in the Bible. The word monotheism isn't in the Bible. A lot of these words. Well, first of all, I'll just give you something, another free with a meal. No English words are in the Bible. <laughs> you ever think about that? There's no English words in the Bible, unless it's a word that we just took the Bible word and put it in English letters. It's all in a different language. So we want to talk about the Bible. Sometimes we have to use terms that aren't in the Bible. Why do we have to do that? Well, a a reason we want to do that is actually a really bad thing that God uses for great good. What's that? Well, the really bad thing is false teaching, heresy. How does God use that to great good? Because it forces us to say the truth more clearly and to respond to show what what the truth of Scripture says about that heresy. So just a very little, very general outline of church history here, a part of it. Very early on, there, there are false teachings about Jesus coming in trying to persuade professed Christians. The teaching that uh, Jesus wasn't really a man, he was just God. The teaching that, that Jesus had no human personality, that the, that the Son of God uh, replaced him, or, or that Jesus was two persons, or the teaching that Jesus was just a man who was adopted in, into uh, Godhood, or, you know, and, and many other things, that he wasn't really uh, physically real, that it was only an appearance uh, of, of flesh and blood. All these false teachings about Jesus, and so the church has to respond to each one of those. And along comes false teaching of his relationship to God. Well, what is he? Are there two gods? Is he fully God? Is he, if he's fully God, how can he be fully man? And all of these different challenges and false teachings. And it drove men of God, it drove pastors like me, but living 2,000 years ago, to dig into Scripture, to bring the truth of Scripture out, to respond to these false teaching. And in so doing, they needed to use words that were not in Scripture to refine what Scripture teaches. Now, we will see in just a few moments a number of passages that show the Trinity, but they don't technically discuss the relations of the Trinity. Now, they show all the data that that theologians and pastors use to come up with the, the doctrine of the Trinity. It's all there, but it's not arranged into a systematic theology. It's not all arranged into a statement that is built to respond to false teaching. You with me so far? So terminology needs to be made that is not meant to replace the truth of the Bible. It's meant to express the truth of the Bible more clearly in responding to the false teaching that people bring in. And so now here's the thing that we really need to understand that if a a, a direct statement of, of Scripture is obviously absolutely true, something Scripture asserts and is absolutely true, if I say something that is a necessary and good deduction from that, that necessarily comes out of that, 
then that is just as true as the original statement. So, the word Trinity is not in the Bible. But does the Bible teach God is one? Yes. Does it teach that God is three persons? Yes. What does the word Trinity mean? God is one in three persons. So is the word Trinity true? Yes. Because it expresses what the Bible says. And the word millennium is not in the Bible per se. But the Bible says there's a thousand years kingdom. So if the Bible says that, is it true? Yes. If the word millennium describes that, is it true? Yes. Then it's a good word for what the Bible teaches. Are you with me? So there's no harm in good words that express what the Bible teaches. The only harm would be if, is if we loved such words more than we loved what the Bible teaches. But we don't believe in them because theologians said them. We believe in them because that's what the Bible teaches. So, so now, Roman numeral 2, we're just going to glory in this truth for the remainder of our time. And if we run out of time, like I said, we'll just figure out something next week because I don't want to rush this because this is really, really glorious. This, this shows you that it's not just a brain-exhausting idea. It is a glorious idea. And as I started to say a moment ago, once you realize what, what the Trinity teaches and what, how the Bible shows it, you just see it's all over the Bible. And if somebody said, were to say to you, it's just a made-up word somebody made up, it's not in the Bible, you will now look at that person with great pity and say, oh my dude, it's all over the Bible. It is all over the Bible. So let's start where the Bible starts. Where does the Bible start? It starts with creation. So letter A, I want to show you, creation is Trinitarian. Where shall we turn to study creation? What's a good place? Anyone know one? Oh, Genesis 1. I was just on my way there. Join me, won't you? So Genesis 1, now what do we see here? You say, oh, so much. Yes, that's true. Genesis 1, so what do we got? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. Now, what do we have here? God created the heavens and the earth. Okay. Now, here's an interesting thing there in the Hebrew text. The Hebrew word for God is Elohim. Now, that im is a masculine plural ending. Like we say bicycle, bicycles. What's the plural ending? It's that S. In Hebrew, the masculine plural ending is im. Like a saraf is a seraph, seraphim is more than one seraphs. Uh, a uh, cherub is a karuv, karuvim is more than one cherub, and so forth. The im is just a plural. Well, the singular word for God, there's a couple, but the singular word for God in this case is Eloah, Eloah, and the plural form of that word is Elohim. Ah. Oh. It's Elohim, so it is, and no Hebrew uh, grammarian could disagree with this as far as it goes. In form, the word is plural. But what does that mean? How about the verb then? Is the verb plural or singular? Ah, the verb is singular. So the noun is plural, but the verb is singular. So it's to be, forgive me, woodenly literal. In the beginning, gods, 
he created. So plural but one. Okay, all right. I don't want to push too much there because the Hebrew text does use the plural in many ways. And it doesn't necessarily mean more than... Like the word for face is panim, which is plural. Probably because there's parts to our face, but not because we're two-faced. That's not what it means. It's just... And the word for water, mayim, is plural. Probably because there's waves on the water, but not meaning there's lots of waters. So... Hebrew uses the plural in different ways, so it could mean different things here. I would only want to try to press it to say that it might mean more than just one if there was something in the passage that indicated that there was something more than one to God. Is there something in the passage that indicates there's something more than one to God? Well, now right away there's the Spirit of God hovering over the surface of the waters. And so we might think that the Spirit of God takes part in all the rest of creation. Now, I'll just hold our place here mentally, but yes, you know, narrator, yes, the rest of the Bible does show that there's more to God than just one person, and the Bible does show the Spirit of God was involved in creation. So, now we turn the narrator off and come back to the text. There's God, there's the Spirit of God, but when do things happen in this creation? When God does what? He speaks. When you speak, what comes out of your mouth? A word. Now, isn't that interesting? Now, if I were to look... Now, in itself, I don't know that I'd want to make a whole lot out of it if this is all I had, but it's not. So if I were to find in other scriptures where that word is maybe personified, or maybe even where that word is a person, then I might make more of that, mightn't I? Is there? Narrator, yes, there is. Yes, there is, and I'll show you in a few moments, but yes, there is. So is there anything else in the context that, that might suggest there's more than one to God, to this God who creates? Yes, there is. Drop your eyes down to verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness, so that they will have dominion over the fish and so forth. Okay, now, I mean, again, no Hebrew grammarian could argue. That is a first-person plural. Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Now, what does that mean? Well, there are many people, both Christians, both non-Christians and Christians, perfectly orthodox Christians, who say, well, that's just the royal we, but that's an English thing. That's not, in the, that's not in the Bible. Royal we is not a biblical thing. So that's not a good idea. So other perfectly orthodox people say, well, God is speaking to the heavenly host. He's speaking to the angels. Mm. Three problems with that just right off. First of all, remember all those verses in Isaiah where God talks about he alone is God. He also says he, he made creation all alone. Nobody helped him. He says that, he says that in those words. But I, I did it by myself. Okay, so that's a problem. Here's another problem. When are we ever said to be in the image of angels? Well, nowhere. In, in fact, Hebrews expressly makes a difference between Jesus becoming an angel and becoming a man. So, never. But here's another problem, and it's the next verse. What does the next verse say? And God created man in the image of himself and the angels? No. In his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So I don't think saying we means God and the angels is, is a good answer at all. So, so what does it mean? 
Well, I mean, if I'm reading this and that's all the Bible I've read at this point, I just have to say, huh, and kind of file that away, hoping that eventually if I read the whole book, it'll clear it up. Now, narrator, it does clear it up. I mean, it does. You read the whole book and you'll come back and you'll say, okay, now I get it. Now I know exactly what's going on here. So we will, I will say on the basis of the rest, well, no, no, I don't even need to say it on the rest of Scripture. I say in this text, there are certainly hints that only one God creates, but there's something more than one about that God, right? There's something more than one about that God. There's a spirit, and then there's something that makes we, even if it's only him and the spirit, but, but he speaks his word to create. So there's God, God's word, and God's spirit there. Huh. All right. Let's see if we can't get some more here. Turn to Job 26, 13. Now that's right before Psalms, so it's right in the middle of your Bible. You should be able to find that without too much trouble. You and I should be able to find it without too much trouble. Job 26, 13. And here Job is speaking. And he says, By his breath, speaking of God, by his breath the heavens were made beautiful. His hand has pierced the fleeting serpent. So just that first line, by his breath. Now here's the thing. In, in the Hebrew text, the word breath is ruach, which is also translated spirit. So if you, have a, you may have a version that says by his spirit. Now, breath means spirit. Spirit is Now there are other Hebrew words for breath also, but this is the word that's used of the spirit of God in Genesis chapter 1 and most commonly used of the Spirit of God. So I would probably translate it, by His Spirit, the heavens are made beautiful. Oh, okay, now that does... Remember when we were back in chapter 1, I said it looks like the Holy Spirit is there, so we should think of the Spirit of God as being part of the rest of the process? Well, this, doesn't this answer that question? By His breath, the heavens are made beautiful. So yes, the Holy Spirit was part of that whole process of creation. Uh, look at Job 33, verse 4. Here, Elihu speaking and saying some additional truth. Job 33, 4, The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath, there's a different Hebrew word, neshama, the breath of the Almighty gives me life. The Spirit of God made me. So at least that could be part of the us in Genesis 1, 26. At any rate, making is, is part of the work of the Spirit. But, but wait, there's another element in creation, wasn't there? God spoke His Word. Does the Bible say more about that? Yes, turn to and many passages. I'll just take you to one. In the Old Testament, uh, Psalm 33. And as they say, there are a number of verses like this. But Psalm 33, verse 6. By the word of Yahweh, the heavens were made. By the word of Yahweh, the heavens were made. And by the breath of his mouth, all their host. And that word breath is ruach, spirit. So you might translate that by the word of Yahweh, the heavens were made. And by the spirit coming from his mouth, all their host. Now, the doctrine of the Trinity is that the Son is eternally begotten by the Father, and the Holy Spirit proceeds from 
the Father and from the Son. That's why sometimes he's called the Spirit of God, sometimes he's called the Spirit of Christ. He proceeds from the Father and from the Son. So, word of Yahweh and the Spirit of his mouth. So there's the three. There's the three that we're seeing. The, the God, the Word, and the Spirit involved in the creation that is created by the one God. Then verse 9 says, For he spoke, and it was, he commanded, and it stood. So God created by his word. Now, if that's all he had, I might say, well, so word could be a personification of a quality. Or could be a person. Is it a person? Narrator. It is a person. Look at John chapter 1. you already there in your minds probably, but let's go there in your Bibles. So, Gospel of John, chapter 1, where the Apostle writeth, In the beginning was the Logos, the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. I don't know, do you see the Trinity there? Because the Trinity, well, at least two persons of the Trinity are there. He was God as to his essence, but he was with God, meaning he was distinct from the Father. He was not the same person as the Father, but he was the same essence. He was as much God as the Father is, but he wasn't the Father. He was face to face with the Father. But I digress, or I progress, one or the other. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him. Him who? The Word. Well, just like we saw in Genesis 1. Just like we saw in Psalm 33, 6. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Now, if it came into being through him, then someone is working by agency of him, but he is doing it, but he's doing it by the agency of another. And that certainly fits the Father creating through the person, the agency of the Son. And now uh, turn next to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 16. This is a song. Of, well, it's, it's prob- it may or may not be a song. It is kind of poetic at least, but it's a passage in praise of the Lord Jesus. And verse 16 says, well, I'll start with 15, that Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of, I would translate it, the firstborn over all creation, For in him all things were created. In him or by him. Those are both perfectly good translations. In him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. Well, they were created by means of him. So to say it in a theological way, they're created by the Father through, by means of the Son, with the agency of the Holy Spirit. And that's just what we saw in Genesis 1, isn't it? 
and in Psalm 33, and in Job, and in John chapter 1, and here. So, do you see when, when John chooses to call Jesus the Word in John chapter 1, have you ever wondered why he calls Jesus the Word? Do you just, you know, trying to get creative, you know, just sitting cross-legged on the floor, 25 or 6 to 4, trying to think of what to call Jesus, and Word comes into his head? No, it comes from the Old Testament. It reflects what the Old Testament teaches that God created by his word, and that word really is Jesus, the Son, who is God, and he's with God. He's absolutely God as to his essence, but he's a distinct person from the Father, eternally so. So now, let's step back. Is this, is this not glorious? It is glorious. How many gods created the universe? One God created the universe. How many persons were involved in the creation of the universe? Three persons. The Father, who is depicted in, in the Bible regularly as being the, the source of the plan. And the Son, who's depicted regularly as being the one who executes the plan. And the Holy Spirit, who is regularly depicted as the one who applies the plan. But creation is the creation of the triune God. And that is why it is a universe and not a multiverse. It was created by the one God. And one God created it. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And so I, I'm, I've got more to say. I'm going to show you a little something just to, to, to get this into your mind, and we'll return to it next week. But this is where we'll leave off, and the rest will be plenty to look at next week, Lord willing. But um, this God is the God that you come to for salvation. When you trust in Christ as your Savior, you're trusting in the Creator of the universe, the one by whom Yahweh created the heavens and the earth. Is He powerful enough to save you? Absolutely. Is he powerful enough to keep you? Absolutely. Can he protect you from all evil and harm and from the devices of Satan? Satan is terrifying. You are not smart enough for Satan. I am not smart enough for Satan. You aren't strong enough for Satan. I'm not strong enough for Satan. Is Jesus strong enough to protect us from Satan? He's the creator. He made Satan. Satan's a creature. He'd like you to think he's more, but he's not. No, no, when you trust Jesus, you could not be going to a better place. You're going to the Savior, but you're also going to the Creator. And when you look to walk by the power of the Holy Spirit and look for the Holy Spirit to power your Christian life, does He have enough power to, Christian, to, to power your Christian life? He was involved in creation. All the power of God is His. All the wisdom of God is His. All the holiness and light of God is His. So yes, this God we worship is an absolutely glorious God. So let's come back to the scripture that was our call to worship and close peeking at the next thing. The thing we'll start with next week, Lord willing, to look at more of the glories of the, of the Trinity. Turn to Galatians chapter 4. And this was our call to worship. And this is one of those passages that I would hope that now with this teaching, if you just were reading this yourself, that you would stop and you'd say, Oh, look at that. All three persons are shown here involved in my salvation. Galatians 4, 4 through 6. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son. So what person of the Trinity sent forth his Son? The Father sent forth his Son. And who's the Son? That's Jesus Christ, God the Son. God sent forth his Son born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, 
that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God, the Father, sent forth the Spirit of His Son, that is the Spirit Jesus gives, into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Abba is just the Aramaic word for dad, for, for father. Nothing particularly special about it. But it's what a son says. It's what a child says. So how am I saved? Am I saved by the Father or the Son or the Holy Spirit? I'm saved when God the Father sends God the Son to redeem me from my sins and God the Holy Spirit comes to live in my heart. So we're saved by the Trinity. And, and we'll see this, Lord willing, in much greater depth uh, next week. And we will see that our very life is in the Trinity and our worship is Trinitarian. But I think probably that's enough to think about for a while. What do you think? So the thing that I would simply say as we close is if you are a believer, this is your God. This is the God you worship. This is the God you trust. This is the God in whom you live. If you're not a believer, then this is the God you need to know. Any other God is an idol. Any other God is, is a false God, is, is a God who cannot and will not save because he's a fiction. But this God can and will save. And the Son of God calls and invites, come to me. So do come. So do come and know life in this Son. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this glorious truth in your word. Thank you for the wonderful way, the unity of your word, the one picture of God that we get in your word from start to finish. Thank you for that we even can know you. Thank you that you've spoken, that you've You've pulled aside the drapes and made yourself known so that we can see you. But we do not kid ourselves in thinking that we're seeing all of you. We don't. But thank you that you come to us in a way that we still can know you truly. Oh, we'll never know you exhaustively, but we can know you truly because you've spoken your word, because your spirit helps us understand. So we praise you, we worship you, we honor you, we give you glory. In Jesus' name, amen.